you join with me in a prayer? Lord, we thank you for being the good and great sovereign God that you are. We pray now that you will superintend over this time as you do over all time. And I pray that uh, what is spoken here, Lord, from your word may be your truth. I pray that I would diminish and that you would be exalted. And I ask that in the power of your spirit, you'll speak to each and every one of us the word we need to hear for ourselves today. Asking this, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. All right, um, I'm going to ask the AV guys, when I start to talk about the challenge trip, let me tell you when to flip this, the slides. Now, many of you know that a week ago, I went on the challenge trip with our high schoolers. And um, I just want to say that in talking about this trip, it was amazing. And before I show you these pictures, I should have put a slide up there that said, don't do this unless you're a professional, because it could be dangerous to your health. That was a joke. <laughs> Let me ask you, how many 66-year-olds would hang out with teenagers, 5,000 of them for a week? Raise your hands. Okay, I got one, two, three, four. You're not that old. <laughs> not many, right? But our kids are amazing. Amazing. And I was so blessed to be with them. And uh, I just want to say to you guys, I am a big fan of yours. So you need to know that. Okay? And don't expect me to go on any week-long tricks coming up here real quick. Um, can we put the first slide up? Um, we were at this venue that was just awesome. And we would worship, and uh, they had subwoofers. Do you know what subwoofers are? You know, when you're in your car, and one of those cars has a subwoofer, and they're next to you, and you got your windows rolled up, and they got their windows rolled up, and all of a sudden your chest starts vibrating, you get anxiety, and you wonder what's going on, and you realize that they got the bass up, and the subwoofers are going. They had the subwoofers going like mad. And I'm, you know, I'm standing there going, am I having a heart attack? Hard to worship God. But they were just loving it. It was awesome. And then uh, this is a picture of, of the crew. If you guys would put the next one up. That was the fun picture. I told them they had to take one serious one. But I wanted to show the fun picture. Uh, and then uh, this is the result. Next picture. <laughs> now, I know you took that picture. I got it. Stop it. <laughs> um, you know, there, there are a couple things I want to say about this, okay? First of all, I'm really glad I had my sunglasses on and a goatee. Because if I didn't and they had a Sharpie, I would have glasses on and a goatee. I'm glad some of you caught that because that's how that really works. And the second thing is, the more I look at that, honey, I'm getting to look like my mom. Okay, we can move off of that picture now. Um, so, in preparation for this, we met the day before to have an introduction of all the leaders 
and all the young people and the leaders were awesome and we met for about 90 minutes. And when we started to talk about the trip and lay out the parameters of it and all those things, we had an icebreaker, an icebreaker. And the icebreaker was two truths and a lie, right? I don't know if any of you ever played two truths and a lie, but that's what we did. And I want you to know your kids are really good at it, which means they're either really good at lying or they have figured out the game and they are smart enough to know to make a lie sound like the truth and the truth sound like a lie. I'm betting it's they're really smart and know how to play the game. But I gave them two truths and a lie. Want to see how you guys do with it, okay? Are you ready? All right, here we go. This, this is my number one truth. Uh, I'm the father, of, uh, the father of two of the guys I grew up with. Their, their dads were in the Chicago mob. Uh, I once fished in a parking lot. And one Halloween with my daughters, I pretended to be a clergyman and put on a clergyman's collar and went trick-or-treating with them. Now, I want to get your sense of which one you think is the lie. How many think uh, the father of two of my buddies were in the mob? And those of you who know, just don't raise your hands because they're going to be looking for you. Okay, how many of you think that I grew up with two of my buddies whose dad were in the mob? Raise your hands, or, or think that's the lie. Think that's the lie. Okay, one person thinks that's the lie. You all think I'm connected, don't you? <laughs> wow. How many of you think that I once fished in a parking lot? I mean, think it's a lie. How many of you think that's a lie? How many think, okay, not too many. And how many of you think I once went trick-or-treating as a clergyman? That's the lie. All right. Here's the answer. I once went uh, trick-or-treating as a clergyman. I have threatened to do that several times, and I'll tell you why. I have actually been thrown out of a hospital visiting somebody on a call. The nurse just absolutely would not believe that I was a pastor. And because I don't run around with my pastor card... I couldn't prove it to her. She said, you got to get out of here. You can't be in here. I said, well, I'm a pastor. You want me to pray with you? Will that verify it? So um, I've, I've often joked about that. Today, we're going to talk about truth. Truth. And in order for us to talk about it, I want to define truth in four ways. There are many ways that it can be defined. And if... Uh, Dr. Firestone were here, uh, the great philosopher that he is. Um, he would probably take me to task on some of this, but he's kind and gracious, and he's not here. So let me talk about truth in four ways. It's important because three of them are demonstrated in the text. One of them is how we often think about truth. So there is forensic truth. Forensic truth are the facts, the who, what, where, when, how the things took place, right? And forensic, when we think of that, we think of the legal system, right? And what you give testimony to, the, these observations, the facts, right? It's, um, who's the, um, the guy on Dragnet? Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Remember him? Yeah. Okay, then there's scientific truth. Now, I always thought scientific truth were facts. 
and came to know a guy who had his doctorate in physics, a brilliant man, who said, no, scientific truth is just models of understanding. And what they do is they test something, and if it is repeatable and verifiable, then it is scientific truth. So if we take an apple and we drop it, right? We do that a hundred times. It tells us there's a force acting on that apple to, to drop down and we come, with, come up with the model of gravity. And that model will exist until something else shows itself to be um, in opposition to that. And then the model of understanding changes. And I thought that was fascinating when he described that to me. The third thing is personal or narrative truth. And for many of us, we would call that perception. And I remember uh, being in the, you know, graduating college at the time um, in the uh, mid-70s and uh, coming to meet a lot of salesmen and they would all say, perception is reality. Because if you want to sell somebody, you got to meet their perception of it. Well, perception isn't necessarily reality. And we live in a day and age in this postmodern world where we hear everybody talking about my truth. As though my truth were fact. My truth is perception. That would be a personal or narrative truth. And the last one that I want us to talk about is propositional truth propositional truth. And these are principles that are foundational and prescriptive for our lives. These are things that we believe and will base our life upon and say that they are true. And often, like scientific truth, they are at some level verifiable and repeatable. So, so what is the propositional truth of our lives as, as Christians? Is it not the Word of God? And we believe that it is eternal and therefore and dealing in the realms even beyond this realm. So how do we completely verify it? Well, in part it gets verified in our experiences, doesn't it? But we believe it. We base our life upon it as though it is true. Now the main focus of these last chapters and acts that we've been going through is that Paul is trusting in the sovereign purposes of God for his life. And we see the church trusting in the sovereign purposes of God in their lives and in what God is doing. Paul, though, as we shall see today, he is standing in, he is standing on, and he is standing for truth. And the proposition that I'd like to propose to you is that to emulate Paul's example as we carry out our life mission uh, is something that we ought to aspire to. We have been given a mission by Jesus when we became followers of Christ, right? The Great Commission to make disciples. And we here talk about that as moving people from the well to the word to the world. And we, 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 we keep it short like that so we can remember what our mission is and how we want to go about it. But 
Our mission statement is to connect with people at the well in their everyday life, just as Jesus did with that Samaritan woman. And we want to disciple them in the Word, just as Jesus did with that Samaritan woman. And when she went off, send them out as empowered disciples to transform the world, she went off to tell everybody, come and see if he's not the Messiah. So that's our mission. Mission that we live out individually and a mission that we live out corporately together. Now, I'm going to go through the storyline of a large passage of text that we have for today. But we're going to focus in on one piece of it. So I would encourage you to go ahead and read through it um, later today or throughout the week. Now, just to remind you of where we've been. Paul has come back to Jerusalem from his final missionary journey. He knows that he will face persecution, hardship, and death because it has been prophesied over him. The Spirit has told him this, right? But Paul is trusting in the sovereign will of God that God will fulfill his purposes in Paul's life and for the kingdom of God. And so, just as Jesus had set his face upon Jerusalem, Dr. Luke speaks about Paul setting his face. He's determined, he's resolved to go to Jerusalem. Now, Paul returns a controversial figure. He not only has the Jews who are upset with him, but he has Judaizers who are within the community of the church and who want Christianity to just be an expression of Judaism, right? They're upset with him because they believe falsely that he has rejected the law, that he is teaching Jews to not live by the law, to forsake it. And um, Paul, when he gets there, he is warned that people are out to get him. And the elders at the church in Jerusalem say, look, one of the best things you can do is show them that you follow the law. And so Paul takes on a ritual cleansing with four other men, and he performs the rites that are required of it, goes to the temple, and while he is there, a mob grabs him, starts beating him furiously, and breaks the Pax Romanus. The Roman peace. Now let me say this to you. That is a serious offense in the Roman Empire. It is serious because they don't mess around. They know that these kinds of upsets and riots and things can turn into rebellion against the empire. So the Roman guards grab Paul, pull him out of it. Right? And... They allow Paul to speak to the mob. Doesn't go well. They take him back. They're going to examine him. And uh, they learn um, that he is a Roman citizen. So they tell him that they will bring him before the Sanhedrin. He spoke to them as we heard last week. And again, people got out of hand. The Roman soldiers took him back to the barracks. Paul is wondering at this point, 
What is God doing? I don't understand. I thought he's going to, to fulfill his plan through me. I'm not sure any of it's going to happen. And we are told in Acts 23.11 that he is reassured by God. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God's assuring him the, the prophecy that was spoken over him that God gave and the, the, the calling that he gave to him, God is going to fulfill. This leads us to our text today. In our text today, we learn that there is a plot to take Paul's life, that the Romans discover it, and so under heavy guard, they take him off to Caesarea. And Caesarea is the place where the Roman governor uh, kept his mansion. It's a beautiful place on the Mediterranean. And uh, if you've ever been into the um, Israel uh, and ever been to Caesarea, you know that it's just gorgeous. And they take Paul there, and uh, he arrives there with these guards, and they have a letter from the Roman tribune. And the Roman tribune gives them an excellent summary of the facts, and the governor reads them. Except the Roman tribune leaves out one minor thing. In essence, he doesn't tell him that, oh yes, we found out that Paul was a citizen of Rome when we were about to examine him by flogging. Roman citizens had rights that the rest of the empire did not. And so they would put you in pain to examine you. And they were preparing, tying him down, getting him ready to go. And Paul says, hey, is it lawful for you to do this to a Roman citizen? Whoa. Now, the tribune doesn't necessarily want the government to think this guy isn't very sharp. He didn't even ask the question. So he wants the governor to keep his right confidence in him. The governor essentially orders that Paul's accusers are to come to Caesarea and present their charges against him. Five days later, the high priest, members of the Sanhedrin, and a Greek Jewish lawyer named Tertullus shows up. Tertullus begins with flattering words for the judge. And this was part of what they did in ancient courts. It makes some sense. You want the judge to be on your side, not against you when you start out. And he is efficacious. Is that a word? Sounds good. With his praise. My wife's looking at me going, you made up that word again. It's another one. Don't judge me. <laughs> I make up words. It's true. Now, he presents his narrative as though it is forensic truth and fact. And essentially what he says is that Paul is a troublemaker. He is stirring up riots in Jerusalem. He is stirring up riots throughout the Roman Empire. Remember how important the Pax Romanus is, right? He is a member of the Nazarene sect. 
And he likely said more about this sect as well. Because remember, Dr. Luke is just recording this to us. There's probably much more going on. And he says that Paul has desecrated the temple, which is why they have mobbed him uh, and tried to beat him. And Dr. Luke tells us in an earlier chapter that it was because they saw him walking through Jerusalem with a Greek, and they assumed that he had brought him into the holy places of the temple where Gentiles must never go. The lawyer concludes by inviting Governor Felix to examine Paul. Now, what Tertullus is assuming here is that Felix will stand like a prosecutor and examine Paul. And most prosecutors have an assumption of guilt, right? So their questions are aimed at drawing that guilt out. Except this, Paul is a Roman citizen. He has rights. And so Felix nods at Paul and he allows Paul to speak in his own defense. Let's read what Paul has to say now, beginning in Acts 24, verse 10. Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found uh, when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul is using words like verify, prove, confess. These are all implying the truth is at the heart of what they are examining. And Paul is standing in truth. He's standing on truth and he's standing for truth. His testimony is this, that he is a Jew, that he believes and follows the law of God just like those who are accusing him, that 12 days earlier he had returned to Jerusalem to bring gifts from other followers of the way who followed that Nazarene, Jesus, in relief for the Jews in the Jerusalem church. That while he was there, he was quietly performing a religious ritual. He instigated nothing when the mob grabbed him and began to beat him. He 
would say, I am a part of the Nazarene sect, but that sect is not subversive. And like all good Jews, his hope is in God. Just like his accusers, he believes in a resurrection of the just and the unjust, stating that all will be accountable for how they have lived their lives. And he says, so I work to keep a clear conscience. And he says, if there's anything controversial I've said, anything at all, it is about the resurrection of the dead. And here Dr. Luke is implying that he probably said even more with regard to this about Jesus, who is the first to rise from the dead and who promises that those who believe in him will rise also. We will learn later on that Felix is acquainted with the way and some of what the way believes. Now, to summarize what we've read in this text, Paul is standing in truth. He is standing in the forensic facts that have occurred. He is standing on truth. That is, he is telling the truth of his personal narrative. And he is standing for truth. That is the propositional truth of what he believes in the Word of God and what he has experienced. The historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. Except for finishing the narrative, which I'll do at the end, I want to stop at this point and do some application about standing in truth, standing on truth, and standing for truth. Think about this. If Paul had failed to stand in the truth by being accountable for his actions or lying about the forensic facts, then his stand on truth and his stand for truth would be rendered ineffective, would it not? I can't lie to you about the facts and then tell you about what I believe and how I'm living my life. Those things are not congruent. So here's the first application. Standing in truth requires us to be accountable for our actions and our beliefs. Paul demonstrates this for us in his very example. And why is this important? Because accountability is foundational for believability of our witness. And as Pastor Tim taught us last week about the clear conscience, we must be able to admit our sin and our shortcomings, and confess them to God and confess them to others. Otherwise, our witness lacks credibility. Now, I want to give us two special warnings here. The first is, as Christians, we'll go to God and admit our sins, won't we? We know Jesus died on that cross to forgive us. And there isn't any sin he can't forgive. 
And there isn't any amount of sin that he can't forgive if we will repent of it and be honest about it. But here's the disconnect for many of us. How many of us, when we admit our sins to God, sins that affect other people, how many of us will go to other people and say to them, please forgive me. What I have done is wrong. God has spoken into my heart about it, and I just need to at least ask you that. Most of us are afraid to do that. We're afraid they won't forgive us. There's nothing in the scripture that says when we do that, they're going to forgive us. Although I've had people come to me and say, you know, please forgive me. My wife, please forgive me. I said, you know, I know Jesus tells me I have to, so I will. But right now I can't. But I promise you, I will work on it. And I'll let you know when it's done. And then we don't have to bring it up again. Right? This is the disconnect that we don't like to go to. And I just want to challenge you to take a look at that part of your life. Because if you're going to stand in truth, that's a piece of business for you. Right? Here's the second thing I want to warn us about. We live on the North Shore. This is a culture that hides warts, fears, and needs. We cover it up real nice. We look real together. Are you kidding me? We need to be real if we want our witness to go forth. Yesterday, uh, the Men's Connection met. And as we sat in the Men's Connection, uh, and I spoke about leadership, the first question I asked um, that my good friend Ken Bryan gave to me and reminded me, and it's a great question. We've done work with men before. When were you closest to God this week? When were you farthest away? Now I'm sitting there thinking, do I really tell them when I've been farthest away from God? You know, I'm their pastor. I don't know that they need to hear this. Okay, I'm just going to tell them. It's probably good. So I said, I was farthest away from God this week when I sat down to do my devotions and I said, Lord, right about now, I just don't want to talk to you. And I got up and I went on my way. Not proud of it at all. Not at all. God's not far from me, but I'm as far from God. And I don't know how to have this relationship with God without being real. I don't know how to deal with it. If that's where I am, that's where I am. And somehow I've got to communicate that to God. And then somehow I've got to come back into relationship with God. God's never done anything to harm me or hurt me. He has shown me more grace than I deserve ten times over. But sometimes we get overwhelmed. Through a series of a lot of things that involve my, my personal life and my immediate family, 
the circle of my friendships beyond my immediate family, my work life, I have come to the place of just feeling overwhelmed. So I admitted it. And one of the guys lovingly said to me, well, you know, you're just like one of us. And I said, do you think? I'm not confused about that at all. Not at all. And any man who stands in the pulpit and thinks that he is not, he is lying to himself. Because we are all dealing with the same thing. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if people can hear that sometimes I'm far from God and I don't like it, and I know it's not right, then maybe they can be real with God too. And maybe they can come back. So today, what we're singing about the armor of God and and His banner goes before me and it goes behind. I can't tell you how many times in my life His banner has gone before me. His banner has come behind. I couldn't sing the song. I was crying. Tears were coming down. Because that's the truth. And I'm so grateful that God, you know, keeps drawing me back into that relationship. But we need to be real Christians so people can believe our testimony. Not hide it. Not pretend to be something we're not. God gets the glory when we're real and honest. Let me tell you this. You all know what the opposite of of real, um, of, do you all know what the opposite of nice is? Real. Real. Keep that in mind. Okay, here's the second application, standing on truth, which means telling our story in words and deeds. Words and deeds. Now, why is that important? Again, because of believability. People have to see the impact of what it is that we believe before they'll believe us. I've been to Guatemala on two mission trips from my former church. And when I was there, I met a wonderful Mayan family, Sebastian, his wife, and four daughters. And uh, the missionaries that I've known for many, many years, George and Kathy Dostal, wonderful people. And they lived across the street from Sebastian. And they lived there and they ministered to the Mayans for more than seven years. And somewhere in that time framework, there was a little Mayan child born, the last in a family of six. And he had severe medical problems. And they helped to pay for him and helped him to get what he needed. And uh, the family talked with them and they talked with the family and, and they believed God wanted them to adopt Jose. And so they went through the proceedings of going through all of that. And because of his severe medical needs, they decided that they would return to Colorado. Now they would continue the mission from a distance. They would travel back and forth. And Sebastian would tell me, we watched them for seven years. And I wasn't going to believe that Christians at all care. 
They convinced me. Seven years of kindness and friendship, of living exactly what they believed and not being hypocrites, and then their love for this little Mayan boy put me over. I'm in, Jesus, and my family's in with me. People, right, have to see the impact upon us so that they can believe. And here's the third thing, standing for truth. Standing for truth requires us to profess what we believe and what we base our life upon. And why is this important? It's important because they have to hear the gospel before they can believe the gospel. What does Paul write in Romans? How then, how then will they call him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We are called to proclaim the good news to the world. And we are living in a time when standing for truth, for what we believe, for God's word, for our faith in his Messiah, Jesus, who rose from the dead, that our faith in this truth is becoming more and more important. And it is becoming harder as it's becoming more important. It's more important because today people don't know the word of God. And I remember when the movie recently of Noah came out with uh, Russell Crowe. And what concerned me was that there would be people who know only of the flood, like there was a flood and there was an ark and there were animals and the guy's name was Noah. But the events that were portrayed in it absolutely were not true. The foundation of certain things that they were suggesting. We have people who will believe that's the truth, just as uh, the same thing um, with the Da Vinci Code. The same thing, because they don't know. They've never read the scriptures. They don't know. The reason it's getting harder is because our society is becoming more and more juxtaposed to Christianity. Consider the issue of same-sex marriage, and I don't mean to bring that out, you know, it becomes a hot button for Christians. It's just one issue. There are so many issues we could talk about. Justice issues, right? We could talk about other things from the scriptures. They're just as important. But it's a, it's a real identifiable one. Today, in our society in America, two-thirds of Americans believe that same-sex marriage um, is a good thing. And as a result, I believe that we will see the church being vilified over time and dismissed because we who believe this is the word that should be prescriptive for our lives, that God has given it to us for our good, right? That it is based on spiritual truths 
that affect the truths in this world and affect us, they will not understand that or listen to it. They will say all of it is no good. If we do not stand up for truth, the world will never hear it. If we do not declare the gospel, the world will never be ready for Judgment Day. And you'll notice how Judgment Day was a part of this. The big idea of the message today is this. If we are to be used by God to spread the good news, then we must be willing to live our lives standing in truth, standing on truth, and standing for truth. Trusting God for whatever comes from it. Now I want to just continue the rest of the storyline and finish up. Dr. Luke records that Governor Felix decides after Paul finishes, I'll rule about this when the Tribune comes. Presumably, the Tribune is going to come and verify not only his letter, but verify what, what the um, high priest and Tertullus have said, and also what Paul has said, so that Felix can make a ruling. Two years will pass while Paul is under arrest. It's hard to believe that the tribune did not come during that time. Dr. Luke says that Felix was looking for a bribe. He also says that Felix wanted to pacify the Jews. And this seemed to be working for him by keeping Paul there since he wasn't getting a bribe. And it made the Jews happy. But the thing about it, the important thing about it, is the sovereignty of God. God is moving in this. And unless this occurs, Paul will never get to the court in Rome and stand before Caesar to stand in truth and to stand on truth and to stand for truth and to fulfill God's purposes for him. God calls you and I to trust his sovereignty as we stand in truth and stand on truth and stand for truth. So let us be encouraged that God and the community of believers together we can do this, and God can use it for his kingdom purposes. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Three comments, or a comment and questions. Uh, I'm glad to know that people are listening, because somebody got the definition of efficacious for me. They're very helpful, um, and it's producing a desired or intended result. I can't even remember what context they used it in. I want to say that was it, but May not be. Um, whoever did that probably will. You can come up and tell me if I didn't use it right. Um, but I still like the word. It sounded good, didn't it? What? It is. It is. Um, the second question is the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Are we judged at death or resurrection? Well, we are judged in death at the time of the resurrection. 
Now, it's hard for us to understand how all these events unfold, you know, because they do unfold at the, the great white throne judgment. And it is there that we're accountable and it is there that um, we end up receiving our resurrection body. So um, between now and the time when the great white throne judgment occurs, I don't know how to speak about that. There are others who would probably be far more knowledgeable than I, but I believe Scripture tells us that we're in the presence of God, so we know what is happening. There is no loss of consciousness on our part. Um, and uh, so I believe that it will happen at that point in time when the great white throne judgment takes place. Um, and then lastly, when you say that all sin can be forgiven, can the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit be forgiven? Matthew 12.31 tells us that it is an unforgivable sin, so does Hebrews 6.6. 6. So, let me see if I can explain that. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is saying that Satan is doing this rather than the Holy Spirit. It is accusing God of being evil. Now, what I said was, there is no sin that can't be forgiven if we will repent of it. The problem of repenting against the blas blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, the Holy Spirit's the one who helps us repent. So if we're rejecting the Holy Spirit and calling the Holy Spirit, how do we repent? That's what makes it unpardonable. The God I believe in, he's capable of doing all things. But he doesn't. He acts in accordance with how he has ordered um, his creation. So I believe that if a person repents, they can be forgiven of their sin. If they don't, Scripture doesn't tell us that they will be forgiven at all. Does that make sense? So that would be the practical understanding of what, what I from these things. Thank you for your questions. I'm glad people are listening. Uh, I didn't see too many nodding off like I did in the van on the way home. So thanks. Please rise now for the benediction. As you go forth, I remind you to live out the mission of your life, right? To connect with people at the wealth. God is doing a work in their lives and he is making divine appointments for you all the time. So step into those divine appointments. Let God use you, right? To stand in truth and to stand on truth and to stand for truth with them as God gives you utterance and the opportunity for it. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace, both now and unto life eternal. Amen.